of you. Why, in a few months, you'll be up in lights on Broadway. Come, the eighth wonder of the world! The stuff for which movies were made. Adventure to make you wonder if it's true, while your eyes convince you that it is. Truly, the thrill of thrills. Don't miss it this time. Welcome back to the Film 89 Podcast. This is episode 102. I'm Sky. I'm Steve. And making his return to Film 89 is filmmaker, podcaster, writer on film, and master cinephile, Martin Kessler. Martin, welcome back, sir. Thank you for having me back. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, I think last time you're on, you did two in a row, wasn't it? Last summer, you did uh, Pray With Me, and then you did uh, Strange New Worlds with John Aminio. Yes, yeah, and I've been watching Strange New Worlds season two, so maybe that'll call for another return. We'll see. Yeah. Now, Martin, you've just recently completed a mammoth three-part essay. Actually, it's more like a full-blown written thesis on the 90th anniversary <laughs> of King Kong and the yes. huge legacy that followed in that film's wake, both in a franchise that's still going strong today. Now. For our listeners who haven't yet read Martin's epic pieces, head over to film89.co.uk where you'll find what are, in my opinion, amongst the most well-researched and brilliantly written pieces on film that I've read. Now, we thought we'd complement Martin's brilliant writing with an episode where the three of us discuss the 1933 original King Kong. It being one of Steve's favourite films and also being such an important and influential film that we felt it deserved its own episode. Now, unlike Martin's pieces, we'll be focusing primarily on the original King Kong, otherwise this could easily spiral out of control into a five-hour epic chat. So if you want... If you want the complete cinematic rundown of the history of the films that followed in the wake of the 1933 film, then check out Martin's pieces on the site because they really do leave no stone unturned. I started off like, how do I start off writing about King Kong? I better go back to like the dawn of human history in our relationship with gorillas. <laughs> the creation it's, it's itself. one of those kinds of pieces, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So before we dissect this classic monster movie, I've tried to summarise very briefly the inception of King Kong into a few paragraphs before we then hand over to Martin to fill in any important gaps. So starting off with Marion C. Cooper. Now, he had been a World War I fighter pilot. He'd helped pursue Pancho Villa in Mexico in 1916. He was an explorer, an adventurer, a risk taker, kind of like a real-life Carl Denham from the film. And after the war, he met fellow American Ernest B. Schoedzak in Vienna, and they later teamed up to make action documentaries, or as they like to call them, natural dramas. And they formed this creative partnership, which ultimately led to 1933's King Kong. Shotzak was the technical side of the partnership, the inventive cameraman, and their motto was, keep it distant, difficult, and dangerous. Actress turned screenwriter Ruth Rose, Shotzak's eventual wife would join the creative team, 
well before they started working on Kong, eventually working on later versions of the screenplay after Edgar Wallace's own screenplay had been drafted before his sudden death before shooting began on the film. In 1931, Cooper met Willis O'Brien, the special effects genius that would bring the creature to life and become the pioneer of stop-motion effects in American cinema. He'd worked on 1925's The Lost World, which like Kong would, it featured stop-motion dinosaurs. Now, Martin, I've given there a very truncated version of how things came together with the creative team behind King Kong, but what important bits have I left out? Uh, that was a good summary, I think. One thing that was really interesting to me talking about its development was the history of this abandoned film creation that RKO was producing, which I, I think the way Marion C. Cooper described it was, you know, a bunch of people wa- wandering around on an island with dinosaurs not doing much, but it's interesting that that film was scrapped, but uh, Cooper, when he went to work for RKO, saw the potential with uh, Willis O'Brien's special effects to realize this idea that had been formulating, and he didn't know quite how to make his giant Terror 8 movie that he had been thinking of, like, you know, do I capture real, real gorillas and make them fight real Komodo dragons? And, you know, that's obviously um, not something you can really do. And he never really wanted to make the typical um, man in a gorilla suit type of movie that was common then because those look fake and bad. And I think he wanted to just make something that um, fulfilled his vision. So it was a serendipitous meeting between those two that allowed for King Kong to come to fruition, I think. Yeah, it was um, David Selznick, who was uh, the head of production at RKO at the time, who was friends with Cooper, and he brought in Cooper to have a look at what they uh, they slate the pictures uh, and you know give him his uh, opinion on it because uh, Cooper was uh, well adverse with especially um, adventure films. Cooper saw creation, and as you said, you know, there was no potential in it as a film, but I think it uh, awakened his um, creative side and thought, well, what can I do with this? I mean, this could be the the route I take in order to make Con real. So the the film itself, guys. When did each of you first discover the nineteen thirty three King Kong? Um, well, for myself, I couldn't tell you. It's one of those films that was with me pre-teens. I mean, it's one of the films which awakened my love for cinema back when I didn't even know anything about cinema apart from the fact that it was really entertaining. I mean, I, before, this was back where, in, actually in the late 70s, I would watch things like the universal horror films, the Draculas and the Frankensteins and the Wolfman and all that and that's what kindled my imagination at the time, which is on odd in one respect because these films were very, very old and it's difficult to think of those films having the effect of the generation of youngsters today. However, back in those days, they were on TV and you don't see them very often on television any, anymore. And so I, I, I lapped it up, you know, King Kong, The Son of Kong, Mighty Joe Young, all those films. They were just so entertaining, such fantastic adventures. And I've and all of them have been with me all my life. I can't. It's like the first time I ate bread. I, I couldn't tell you when, but it had a an indelible part of my you know uh, in my life. I think even before I'd seen the original film, I knew who King Kong was. I knew the story. It was just one of those things I kind of picked up through through pop culture, through cultural osmosis. Actually, before I'd seen the original film, I had seen King Kong versus Godzilla because I was obsessed with all the Godzilla films as a little kid. I think I did see the original for the first time on television. I think I was at a hotel somewhere with my parents and it was on 
TV playing back to back with uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon. Yeah, I was completely enthralled. And that was something that I saw a lot in people who were influenced by King Kong is that uh, their first introduction to it was through watching it on television. And it was interesting to me how the film inspired multiple generations of people to become interested in film and filmmaking by being re-released a number of times throughout the 30s, 40s, 50s, and then eventually played on television pretty regularly. So you'd see people from different decades who discovered the film that way and fell in love with it. I've said many times about the the kind of um, quite lucky upbringing I had with certain family members who kind of, like I'm trying to do with my children now, kind of educated me on the classics. But as I've had with few films that we've covered already on the podcast i can't pinpoint when i first saw king kong as a child and it may well be that i saw so many little bits of the film on you know documentaries and shows about ray harryhausen and you know documentaries about special effects that i don't even know if i'd seen the whole film until the point where as an adult i think it would have been around about 2005 around about the time peter jackson did his remake of king kong that i picked it up on dvd and watched it and so much of the film was familiar to me but so much of the first half of the film wasn't and it makes me think did i ever see the film in its entirety when i was a kid i honestly don't know if i did but it's so weird because I've watched the film, it feels familiar, yet I can't answer that question as to whether or not I, I, I saw it when I was younger. But yeah, it's one of those films that's... You didn't watch it in the all those years been between? No, I didn't. I definitely oh. didn't. Now, when I was younger, I grew up on Ray Harryhausen films, Jason and the Argonauts, Clash of the Titans then was, was, was a favourite of mine. And King Kong doesn't kind of fit into that kind of memory I've got of stop motion being something I grew up with, which again makes me think, whether or not I ever did actually see it as a kid or it was just something I was aware of. And certainly when I came around to watch it, you know, would have been probably around about 18 years ago now, I was kind of surprised by some of the moments in the film, you know, in particular you know, moments regarding the, the special effects little bits where I thought, my God, for a film from 1933, that is so clever. And just the, the amount of detail that was put into the animation. But I, I don't know. I, I really don't know if I did see it as a kid, but certainly I, I'm going to say for the record then, that the first time I saw the film proper would have been around about 2005. So you don't have the nostalgia element of I this do, thing. I do though, because the last act of the film is so familiar to me. It's iconic. It, but it, it, it is, it, I watch the last act of the film, and it's like something that I'm completely familiar with, but again, that could be just because I've seen snippets of the film elsewhere over the years. I really don't know. Should we just go through the film? Sure. Let's start in New York. Oh, yeah. But actually, the version I've got starts with a three-minute overture. I Sometimes I'll skip the overture in movies. Maybe that makes me a bad cinephile, but I'm like, ah, it's, I'll just skip to the beginning of the movie. But this, I, I feel like, well, you got to watch the overture. <laughs> you got to listen to it, and it kind of sets the mood. And I, I do enjoy the overture in this case. I can't see. I can't ever skip the overtures in a film. I've got to watch them. I did it last year when I was uh, several times when I watched Lawrence of Arabia for our episode. I think I, I, I even did it for our... Cleopatra episode all those years back with James Hancock. I, I just watched the over, Overture and the Entract and the Indemission. It's just one of those things where I think the OCD part of my brain just can't. When you see a movie in the theatre and it would have the Overture, instead of playing a million ads before the movie, when it's just playing the music and you go and you find your seat. Uh, like I went to a screening of 2001 A Space Odyssey in 
70 millimeter in Toronto a couple of years ago on Canada Day. You know, there were no ads. It was just the overture at the beginning and the curtain opening. And it was such a different experience than, you know, if you just sit and watch the overture on your on your screen or, you know, if you go and see a movie in the theaters and it's like a bunch of not even commercials or trailers for other movies. It's like car commercials and cell phone commercials and stuff like this before the film starts. Mm-hmm. It, it felt so classy getting a getting an overture like that. And it also prepares you for the film because I've seen films, especially the flashback films, where you go today and see a film from well, 20, 30, 40 years ago. And sometimes all it does is the house goes dark, the certification comes up and then the film starts. Whereas if you've got the overture, it eases you into it. You know that the you know that it's going to start. You know that you know the experience is going to begin. You're not thrown right into it. Now, Fay Ray, uh, who played Anne Darrow, and Robert Armstrong, who played Carl Denham, they were shooting King Kong director Ernest Schultzak's The Most Dangerous Game at the same time as they were making King Kong. Fay Ray had featured in eleven movies that year. Wow. <laughs> Although I think from what I read, it might be like a little bit of a myth that King Kong and Most Dangerous Game shot. I think it was the year before, wasn't it? Most Dangerous Game was certainly shot the majority of that was in 32, wasn't it? I think uh, what happened was, I mean, obviously there's sets from Most Dangerous Game that are reused in King Kong. You can see them. I think they shot the test shoot for King Kong to convince RKO to sign off on the film, to convince Selznick to okay the movie while they were working on Most Dangerous Game, because you hear these stories about, oh, Fay Ray just was shooting Most Dangerous Game, then she'd go and put on the blonde King Kong wig. But then if you look at the shooting dates for King Kong and Most Dangerous Game, they don't quite line up. So I think mm. maybe it was one of those things that there's a half-truth in there, and it kind of turned into this myth of like, oh, they were shooting they were shooting both movies, uh, you know, at the exact same time, and, you know, they'd go from one set right into the other. You know, they were shot basically back-to-back, but I think there wasn't quite that overlap because I, I used to hear that all the time and then it's one of those things where you go and look and say oh like maybe that that wasn't quite the case it's all part of the the factory environment of the time though isn't it yeah you're sharing one after the other and it, it's easy to pick up this uh this myth of them making being made at the same time because it's very similar cast and the sets are the same and you know the director's the same so um it, it's, it's very easy to wrap it into this little uh, myth but it it was all a factory at the time as soon as you finish one, you go on to the next one. It seems like there's a lot of mythology around the making of this film, too. Like, talking about Willis O'Brien and his special effects, it seemed like people didn't exactly know how the special effects were done. You know, this was not really documented. It was not publicized because you want to maintain the illusion of of the special effects. So, you know, it's interesting. I think one of the special features on the DVD is um, Peter Jackson kind of recreating and trying to figure out how Willis O'Brien did some of these effects shots because the way that they were publicized weren't accurate at all. It was basically just made up to impress people. But, um, you know, it's from a time period when films, you know, they weren't necessarily extensively documented how they were made. So I, I think that kind of lends itself to some of these stories or when the legend becomes about fact. it yeah yeah print the legend yeah now the, the opening takes place in new york doesn't it? you've got carl denham uh, he he's looking for an actress to star in this film he's looking to shoot and that's then when he meets Anne darrow now I, I i struggle so much to talk about the first act of this film and to separate it from peter jackson's film because i think i've seen both of them an equal amount of times and i i'm seeing both versions of scenes 
from those phones playing alongside each other and like the the, the taking of the apple from the the, the street vendor well, that's interesting because uh, it was during the time of the Depression and it just shows the disparity in um, in wealth between people because yeah. you've got this one woman who was trying to steal an apple because she's so hungry and, you know, Carl Denham comes along and he's like, oh, it's only a, it's only a um, 20 cents or whatever it is, I can't remember yeah. what it was, and he just throws it at the man. Yeah. So And, and there's a, quite a lot of that in the film. Yeah. And it plays into that scene that they have right after where you can tell she's not quite comfortable with him mm-hmm. you know at least not immediately she doesn't know what he wants from her and it's kind of it's in the subtext of the scene that you know like i can't quite say no to this guy because i'm desperate but i don't know if he's gonna ask for something that is bad <laughs> but, i think uh, she assumes yeah. he is <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's not exactly forthcoming is he <laughs> And, you know, and there is something exploitative about the way that Carl Denham, the first thing he does when he needs an actress after he's talking, you know, OK, we need a woman for this film. He goes to like a, a woman's mission yeah. looking for a woman to pick up like, you know, it's a little bit um, you get a sense right from the beginning that this guy is exploitative in some way. And he's looking just to get his movie made no matter what. Although I think ultimately, like if you do contrast this with the Jackson remake, the Carl Denham in this one, I think, is a more complicated character, actually. I think, you know, the Jack Black version they do kind of tweak him maybe a little bit too much into that like villainous territory where he's you know i'll i'll let my crew get killed as long as i get the film made and i i think like this carl denham does seem to really care about the adventure and he you know like he's meant to be sort of a, a stand-in for marion c cooper i mean they say that the, of the three main characters Marion C. Cooper is Carl Denham and Ruth Rose is uh, Anne Darrow and Ernest Schutzak is Jack Driscoll. So, you know, you can kind of see the personalities of these people reflected in the characters, but they're not necessarily the most flattering <laughs> portraits, maybe, especially for Carl Denham. Yeah. And then Denham, obviously, you know, he convinces her to go along with him and then they go to the dockyard and then we first see the ship, the Venture. Some of those establishing shots of New York at night, I just think, you know, and, and Peter Jackson did, he did a really good job of recreating the feel when he remade the film in 2005. But again, going back and watching, you know, the black and white version in, you know, 1.37 to 1 Academy ratio, you still just lose nothing of like the epic scale of, of New York. And then when they get onto the ship, and I'm going to skip forward a little bit because one of my favourite shots, maybe my, it might be my favourite shot in the whole of King Kong, is... When they're approaching Skull Island and you just see the venture and the way it's shot angled up from beneath and it comes through the fog and you can just make up venture on the hull. It is just a beautiful shot. It is. It is. Yeah. But prior to yeah. that then, you've got quite a lot of exposition and dialogue and a lot of character stuff on board the venture. And it's in this part of the film where a lot of the film's of its time attitudes towards women are sort of siphoned through the Jack Driscoll character. <laughs> I couldn't help but laugh <laughs> on his rewatch. Just, just laugh at, at the the blatant sexism. Oh, yeah, the, the comical yep. <laughs> sexism that that he's spouting. Although I, I think he is kind of meant to be seen as as buffoonish. Like yeah, you oh, know, yeah, yeah. Like I, I don't think that they're necessarily using Jack Driscoll as a mouthpiece for you know this is what we actually think. <laughs> like, you know, when he finally kind of confesses to Anne that, you know, hey, maybe I love you. She's like, but Jack, you hate women. <laughs> and he goes, well, you ain't women. <laughs> it's great. There's so much good dialogue in that, that kind of first act on board the ship. And yeah, I, I think it's just a case of he is, you know, he's a sailor 
adventurer and spends a lot of his time on ships and one could imagine that his contact with women is maybe quite limited. And yeah, I think well, it's more about him as a character than it is about any of the attitudes of Cooper or Shodzak. We've got to remember as well that none of them really wanted a woman. Mm. Uh, Carl Denham didn't want a woman in his film. Uh, he says, you know, uh, the critics say they would make twice as much if it only had a woman or something yeah. like that. And he's really dismissive of it. And, the, and that's the only reason she's there is because of box office. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> You know, so none of them have got the, um, the best attitude when it comes to women, is it? Yeah. And then on board the ship, then, Denham is is kind of doing some practice shooting with Anne Darrow. She's wearing that dress and, you know, he's shooting her screaming. And I just love that line where Driscoll is watching him, you know, kind of work. And, and he's shooting that scene of Anne Darrow looking up and screaming. And he just says, what do you think she's really going to see? Which I think is a nice little bit of foreshadowing as to what's to come. Not that anyone watching this film is ever going to be in any doubt as to what's coming. You know, it's the, it's in He's the, on the poster. It's in the name of the film, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and if anybody wants to know what Kong was, they just have a look at the movie poster before they pay the money. I absolutely love that feeling of like, we're going off to make a movie. And in a way, the movie that you end up watching is kind of what they would be making. I think it's a great way to kind of bring you into that world of fantasy that uh, the movie soon enters. Yeah. And again, this next part of the film now, when the venture is approaching Skull Island, it's it's at the 25-minute point in the film that we get to Skull Island, and you just hear that distant drum beat, and, and they think it's it's waves breaking on a shore, possibly, and then there's that line, that's not breakers, that's drums. And it's the kind of building of tension and that ominous feeling is that, that something bad is going to be happening that the film does. There's nothing particularly special about it. It's just so simple and effective it's all about building the expectation as you say it's it's the audience who's seen it for the very first time little by little they they drip feeding you this is what is coming it's coming soon it's coming soon you might know from the poster what's coming but you still can't wait to see it because you know it's going to be something big it's going to be something unusual it's going to be something terrifying and so it's that drip feeding because when you know when when the fog clears it is something special because you've got that brilliant matte painting You've, you've got the shoreline and then you know, they get off, they could go on the rowboats and they go ashore, but then the background is a matte painting and you can barely tell. And then on top of that, the little animated birds in front, yeah. in the foreground, it, it kind of... I mean, one of the things that's really incredible about the, the visual effects in the movie is that sense of depth, the way they layer the images together to kind of create something that feels three-dimensional instead of, I, I think a lot of films that use uh, matte paintings and that sort of thing, you kind of get this feeling of flatness and they're constantly trying to work against that in King Kong. Yeah, and it's only when you watch the, the making of documentary that you, know, you can find on the King Kong Blu-ray, and it's, it's like two hours and 40 minutes, and I've, I've made my way through it this week. It's only when you see uh, Peter Jackson and his team trying to recreate the, the lost spider pit sequence and some other kind of lost footage from the film, and they, they were kind of deconstructing the way the film was made, and then it shows you in like a sort of 3D thing, showing a side profile of how the, the special effects shots were, were lined up, You've got foreground images, sometimes using glass with, you know, painted on elements. Also then, they were actually sticking like ferns and stuff onto the glass. Then behind that, you'd have, you know, like an environment where you would have kind of like a, a tabletop where the, certainly in the, you know, the later scenes that the, the Kong kind of armature was placed. And then behind that then, you'd have rear projection. And it's just the way all of these, these layers were put together. It's only now, when I watch the film, having seen this documentary, where I can see how it's all put together so cleverly. 
and there's, there's some little some little touches we'll come to later on which i've not noticed them until the most recent rewatch by little things that um o'brien did like certain little traits which he gave some of the stop motion creatures in particular kong they, they just show the attention to detail and that then goes into the environments and, and, the, and the, the care that was taken with these map paintings. There's like a seamlessness to it all. There's very few kind of effect shots that stand out as being like jarring because it's all kind of matched up so nicely. I don't know if that makes sense, but there's certainly a continuity to how everything looks. And I think that just adds then to the sense of immersion as soon as they step foot onto mm-hmm. this island. Yes, it, it, the island does feel real. Yeah. You, you, not, and, and with the sets as well, even with these, not the miniatures now, I'm talking about the actual sets themselves with all the extras on there. It just gives you a sense that this is not a Hollywood stage, even though it is. You are on the island with yeah. these people. And, and some of the sets, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't um, climb up because as you've got loads and loads of extras climbing up and it's all wobbling. <laughs> yeah. And I'm thinking, I wouldn't be doing that, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it just adds to it. That amazing Kong wall set was built on the studio backlot of Culver City. And then they, they meet the, the island's inhabitants. Another little thing I noticed on, on this watch, another scene where the um, the sort of leader of the tribe, the, the male leader of the tribe, is walking down the steps. If you listen, for every footstep that he takes down the steps, Max Steiner's score precisely matches it with a beat. Yes. And now I'd never noticed that because I was paying more attention to little things like that this time. I was like, holy cow. So clearly, Steiner is is you know, he's not just he's, he's not just doing a, a kind of um, you know a makeshift score. He is really taking his time to make sure that this score precisely matches everything that's on screen. And I like that the score in the first act until they get to the island. There's not very much music. It it kind of lets the ambience take hold in New York and on the ship. And then when you get to the island, the music starts to come in and it starts to build and you you get a sense that Steiner's doing a lot to actually create that sense of danger and tension and character and I, I just love the way that he brings it in you know not immediately and not overdone it, it kind of trickles in and it builds and builds in this really fantastic way and it works it you know it does work yeah and it starts off I think one of the reasons why there's not a lot of music in the beginning of the film is because when films were made at the time they didn't have a lot of music in them. If there was music playing, it was usually because of somebody was playing a record or a phonograph or whatever they called it at the time. Uh, and so you could see the, the source of the music. And this score was the first feature-length musical score written for an American talkie film. So I think it builds into that so that, you know, it, it takes the expectations that the audience would have had at the time and then slowly build it so that it introduces the score. Uh, and then by the end, you are fully immersed in the score and it, it, it works so well wonderfully with the images yeah and one thing i've noticed that i noticed when we did the um, adventures of robin hood episode earlier on in the year because now i've listened to the the soundtrack in isolation in stereo it sounds so much better and so richer than it does when it's paired with a film as part of a mono soundtrack and it's kind of hidden in behind the vocals and the sound effects and you know it's just kind of dulled down when you listen to the score in isolation it's such a beautiful score oh it is yeah. it is and it, it and it works today um, even by itself, you know, as you say, in isolation, even like two years later. I mean, it, it kind of set the bar for film soundtracks, like period. You know, you can almost find its influence in basically every other symphonic score that came after it for movies. And then it's at the 46 minute mark that Kong finally arrives. And Ray Harryhausen says that he almost lost control of his bladder when he was watching this film <laughs> aged, I think he was 13 when the giant ape finally appears on screen. 
That's a good way of describing it. <laughs> now let's, let's talk then about the titular character because O'Brien and his team, they made at least three different Kong puppets in different scales because the scale of Kong does change quite a bit throughout the film dependent on the environment he's in. Now these different Kong puppets or models, whatever you want to call them, they were built over metal armatures and then covered in kind of like cotton wool and then rabbit fur. Now he'd spent close to 20 years working on the stop motion process and, and his work would just have a huge impact on cinema. And stop motion is a hugely labor-intensive process. Now, one minute of footage would require 1,440 frames of stop motion animation. And you have to maintain incredible degrees of continuity of foreground, background, and surrounding elements, and equally importantly, continuity of lighting for it to all match. Now, these are shots which are taken days and days and days to, to shoot. And you go away from the set, you come back the next day, if the lighting doesn't exactly match, then it's going to show. Or if a plant grows yeah. while you're filming. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the um, the mythical things about King Kong, though, is also is the fur that uh, you see it moving. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the story is that it, though that's the fingerprints of uh, O'Brien and his uh, technicians as they were moving him. And they decided to leave it on because it does actually look like this fur is moving because of the wind, because yeah. of his movements, because of, you know, just natural natural movement anyway. And so it's, it's a, a happy accident in that respect, but it works. Yeah, no, I, I know it's, you know, like you say, it's it's the, the, the hands of the puppeteers touching, you know, the model and, and kind of just pushing the fur down. But yeah, I, I tell myself, no, it's just the wind. I mean, you know, yeah. it does work well, even knowing what it is i still like it because i sometimes like seeing the hand of the artist yeah. in the film somehow you know if it's animation you know sometimes it's nicer to see like the the pencil marks underneath the cells and things like that you know i always like seeing that tiny little bit of roughness that gives you an idea of how how this thing was actually made yeah, but yet by the end of the film even though it carries on right to the end, you don't think of it. By the time he's in New York, you don't think of the movement of his the fur. It's just something that you just accept naturally. Now, what's the first um, kind of dinosaur that we see in the film? Is it the Stegosaurus? I think it so, is. the Stegosaurus yes. that they quickly shoot. <laughs> no, no, I love the, the live action, uh, you know, the actors in the foreground, and then you've got that stop motion, rear projection, background, and the way that's done. And the way the camera's panning across as the actors move across. Oh, the, as the they walk across, yeah, the, yes, yeah. The, the panning is, is what really kind of sells it, that they're in this space, and you get that whole scale of the Stegosaurus as they walk across it from head to tail, and that little movement it does. Like, it's incredible, really, to think, you know, even today, how you would do an effects shot like that, you know, where it's not locked down, it's not static. It's really mind-blowing, actually. <laughs> You know, it reminds me of, uh, remember when Jurassic Park was first came out yeah. and you had all these stories about how the actors didn't know what to look. They just had to look up in the air and look astounded, but they didn't know what they were going to look at because nobody had done anything like that with CGI before. Well, this was, was it uh, 60 years before Jurassic Park? Those actors wouldn't have had a clue what they were looking at. They they would, it was just pure imagination. Look scared, look in awe, look, you know, look up and be um, terrified. That's all they had to go with them. Oh, let's talk about the dinosaur fight. Now, is he supposed to be a T-Rex or an Allosaurus? It's a, it's a dinosaur. It's a... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I guess don't think they knew. This is before you could really, uh, you know, you could Google, like, how many fingers does a Tyrannosaurus Rex have? So I think it's just Tyrannosaurus-like dinosaur. 
Yeah, today um, we know that a Stegosaurus probably wouldn't have charged him, and the Brontosaurus certainly wouldn't have attacked somebody up a tree. And eaten someone, yeah. And eaten somebody, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. And, and what, what, Brontosaurus. Yeah, why that man thought the best way to escape a creature with a huge with a neck, neck like that is to <laughs> a tree. <laughs> you know, but there you go. Yeah. Now, that fight... The, the fight with the dinosaur and some of the little touches which are put in that. The bit at the end where he just rips his jaw apart and, and pushes the top part kind of sideways and, and then you see the blood coming out of the mouth and then at the end where he's just kind of like, he picks it up and, it, and the jaw is flapping and he, he's quite almost like childlike in the way he's doing it. That That's always struck me as just, you know, an absolute genius piece of animating and, and O'Brien, all these little touches he put in. Like this one bit, I'm not sure, I think I think it's the, the dinosaur fight where Kong is knocked on his back and then the kind of, you know, the, the camera goes over with him and we see him kind of, you know, looking down, kind of looking quite awkward as he's on his back. Then he gets back up and just the time it takes just to show, you know, Kong from a different angle, kind of the fact that he's, he's not yet got the upper hand in this fight. No, but also the way that he's reacting as well. It's like when he gets shot and he puts his hand into the wound and then looks at yeah. his blood as if, well, what is that? Yeah. I mean, that's genius. Yeah. yeah. And just how much movement there is in the fight and the fact that you have a you have an actor in the foreground, you have Faye Ray up in the tree, and then there's interactions with that where she mm. gets knocked over. Like, it's just a mind-blowing sequence. I, I really, if you told somebody today, I want you to go and make this sequence uh, without CGI, like, I'm not sure they could come up with something no. <laughs> nearly as good. Uh, it's, it's fantastic. It's really just incredible. And like you said, all those great details, the way he plays with that jaw after it's dead like he's sort of curious it doesn't quite know you know if it's dead or what 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 happened to it you know it's such an interesting touch that again comes back up later like he said when he's shot and he sort of looks at the blood like he's he's not quite sure what what's happening and you know in a way i, I think that makes the character of king kong really endearing even though he's this total monster well it keeps him characters doesn't it yeah yeah and, and O'Brien also infuses like his own personality because O'Brien had boxed in the past and there's these clear sucker punches and uppercuts which Kong is trying to give this dinosaur. And that's all come from O'Brien. Well, and then the, the the scene that gets me, that, that moment that gets me is when they actually tangle up and they're actually rolling across yeah. the floor. Incredible. It is, it is. Oh, let's talk about the log scene because, my God. <laughs> the, the beginning of that scene, right, is like Abbott Costello. They they walk across the log in one direction, all fine. But as soon as they got changed direction, they're falling over each other. They just, you know, it's not a big log, but they, oh. it's very, very funny. It is slapstick. But it's just a mixing of elements and the fact that he, he picks this log up and he's twisting it. And then you've got, you know, a mixture of live action. There's a few shots then with little kind of stop motion actors. And then when he subsequently then fall and, and the log goes down that kind of um, crevasse. And then you've got the, you know just live action shots of those little puppets or, or figures, whatever you want to call them, just hitting the bottom of the ravine. And it's, it's, it's done so well because they have got a little bit of weight to them and they kind of hit the floor and bounce in the same way that you would expect a body would if it fell 90 or 100 feet. Yeah, and, and you can hear the screams. As yeah. they fall in, and yeah, I guess that's where the famous lost spider pit sequence would have been. Yeah, is at the the bottom of that ravine. All the creepy crawlies come out, <laughs> but um, I mean, you can still see one creature from that sequence uh, very briefly climbs mm. up. It's that bipedal lizard thing. So it seems like that would have been uh, interesting just for the sheer monstrous creativity going on in that sequence. But of course, now it's uh, it's famously gone, probably forever. <laughs> 
Well, you know, Peter Jackson and co, you know, with the help of Rick Baker and also Frank Darabont helped him, you know, they've, they've done a quite a fair play, the amount of work that went into the, the recreation of that scene based on the notes they had and the script and, you know, one or two still images. I don't think the film needed it. And I no. think that's why it was removed because it takes away from Kong because they are scenes that don't involve Kong. It takes away they from were... the love triangle. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there were a couple different explanations why the scene was cut. You hear a lot of people say, oh, it was too, too horrific. Uh, they had to cut it out, which, you know, that I think sounds good. But the, the real reason that I kind of believe is when they say, oh, it, it just went on too long. It messed up the pacing. And, you know, I, I think a good kind of contrast is the Peter Jackson film where you have this scene. And it's it's a fantastic scene, but it just goes on and on. Yeah. It kind of breaks up the the pace so i think i mean one thing that i think really stands up about um, king kong is its pacing like the fact that there have been so many subsequent king kong films made and none of them are paced as well as this i think yeah. is remarkable you know i know so many people who think oh film from the 1930s it must be slow and boring and it's not this movie oh, just not. moves and it feels like you know if something was going to disrupt that pace it had to go like it's just that kind of a movie where everything flies by i mean i put it on last night again just to watch in preparation for this and like oh wait the movie's over you know it has yeah. that sort of a feeling where you know you just get swept up in that world and you're never bored and then the movie's done well it's that perfect sweet spot isn't it it's an hour and 40 minutes and how many times have you know i know i've said this so many times on the podcast i i know other podcasters have said that they lament the fact that the 90-minute film is no longer a thing. And films these days are so long. And sometimes I, I go to see a film and I'm just, just thinking, why does it have to be two hours and 40 minutes? You know, <laughs> right. Two hours, 20 minutes sometimes is too much. And very rarely do I ever come out of there thinking, yeah, that was absolutely bang on. Now, an example of a film that we talked about recently, The Wolf of Wall Street, that's bang on three hours and that film flies by at a cracking pace and not once am I ever thinking this is sagging, this is this is too much sort of fat on the meat. The three hour runtime works perfectly there. But as we'd like to come on to, maybe if later on we talk about Peter Jackson's version, you're not gonna beat an hour and forty minutes. It just the pace doesn't let up. No, and yeah. you, it, it allows you to just slimline everything and just show what you know, um last week I watched First Blood again. Mm. And that's what's that's less than a hundred minutes. Yeah. And it doesn't need anything anymore uh, any more than that because it's so slimline, there's no fat in it whatsoever. And that's the same with King Kong. And that's the the problem with so many films these days that they, they every action scene has got to be longer and longer, 15, 20 minutes for an action scene, and then you have to have, you know, long mm. moments of build up you know just before you even like in the peter jackson version before you even get to the island this hour 45 minutes is i think it's a sweet spot for for action films especially like this 100%. and it still feels epic it doesn't feel it does. compromised mm. in in that like oh it's not this three hour long thing yeah because we're very rarely ever seeing the same locations twice and i think that helps a lot talk about locations whilst we're still on skull island when he then takes Anne into that cave and he puts her kind of up on a sort of rocky precipice and then he turns his back and then that creature comes and attacks her and have you noticed that what he's doing before she lets out that scream he's picking up a little flower and he's sniffing it and then oh yeah as if to give it to Anne, and then she screams he turns drops the flower and then he grabs the creature and then you know the creature wraps itself around his neck they have a fight and then as he's bashing the creature on the floor max steiner's score is again kind of matching each time that creature hits the rock 
And like there's so many elements at play there. You've got smoke in the foreground, you've got the stop motion elements, you've got the live action kind of plate of Anne, which I think was being projected. And then you've got all of those background elements with the cave with the sunlight coming in and clearly then the, the far background and, and matte paintings. But it's like you say, Martin, it's about the layering of the effects and there's so much depth in that one shot. It's one of my favourite shots in the entire film. I know I've said that about the venture shot, but this one <laughs> truly is just a work of art. That just goes to show how good the film is, though, when you think, oh, that is it, that is, oh, wait a minute, this is the favourite. You know, and there's so many of those moments. And the character moment when he fights the snake hmm. and then he picks it up afterwards again, he gives it a shake as if, oh, what happens now? Yeah. It's dead. Yeah, just you know? like he did with the dinosaur with the jaw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Jack then comes and rescues Anne. You know, you've got that, beautiful scene up on the, the kind of cliff top and then they escape and then obviously Kong then Kong's pissed and then he goes after them have you noticed though when they fall off the cliff how close they come to the rocks yeah at the, when they hit the <laughs> yes. water it makes me cringe every single time yeah. but they're little they're models haven't they being dropped into water it doesn't matter I no. still cringe <laughs> <laughs> also that's right around the, the scene where Kong undresses and with yeah. his finger. Yeah, that was one of the scenes really that was like... cut out, wasn't it, for the 38 version? Yeah, yes. there, there were a couple cuts made for the re-releases because that was during the Hayes Code era. But like, I just love the the physical interaction between this giant special effect and you know a real person and seeing how they yeah. can exist in the same frame it's it's again just sort of mind-blowing to me yeah, and what arm is about... real, isn't it? yeah the, the, the hand yeah. Hold... arm is real yeah the arm yeah. holding Anne is is full size and then it's the, the rest of him then is stop motion interacting with that full size uh, hand uh, right hand was this holding Anne. it's incredible just what you're saying about how like every other shot is could be your favorite shot the way the film looks the visual style with these bright lit backgrounds that kind of you know have a hazy background and then come to like a shadowy crisper foreground or the the way that new york looks so far like visually i think this film is really really beautiful i, I think it really holds up well in that regard and there there are a bunch of shots you could just take and frame and it looks like a work of art you know between the the matte painting and the photography I, I think it doesn't get talked about as much because there's so much other remarkable stuff in the film but mm. photographically I, I think it's a it's a gorgeous film yeah and again little touches uh which you know just show how much thought Willis O'Brien put into his work was when Kong eventually chases him to the beach and then they throw the kind of um, gas bombs and then he's losing consciousness and then he falls over that sandbank and the way his hands when they interact with the sandbank and push the sand forward and then as he kind of slumps down the, the sand goes forward with him how do you do that it, it just adds to the overall sense and I know that he's a stop-motion puppet I've never felt otherwise I, because of the fact that you know the effects are that far removed or and i don't want to say basic or you know i i know what i'm looking at you know there's a part in the film where i've been maybe five ten minutes after kong first arrives where all of that evaporates and and i'm kind of immersed in the character and there's just so many great little moments and and that one with the sand just interacting it, it just it blows my mind it, it must have taken so many you know man hours for the, these effects to be done and what's so great about it is that this is the, the dawn of these special effects. Yes, he'd made um, The Lost World beforehand, but you know, to, to, to think of all these details in one of the first films to ever do all this, that is remarkable. Yeah. Because it's not a, a learning curve. It's everything is there. Yeah. And then it, it'd be interesting to see how they actually got him on board the venture, but get him on board they did. And then 
they take him back to New York, and then we cut to Kong, the eighth wonder of the world. One of my favorite King Kong projects that never got made was this idea that Marion C. Cooper had to have an in-between quill, where during the time that Kong was on the venture, they would go off, get damaged in a storm, and have to bring the ship in for repairs, and King Kong escapes and has to fight another monster, and then they recapture him and, <laughs> and then bring him to New York, which, just thinking about that, I, now I every time I watch it, I think about that just happening in between the cuts, but there are films that would explain, okay, this is how we got him on the ship, and this is how we carried him, and like to me, that just doesn't feel important again the film the pacing is so effective where it's like okay third act you know here we are back in new york i I think that's so much more impactful than like the need to explain every detail yeah i think they do say we will build a raft or something as if they're just going to (laughs) drag him along but no it's that transition from you know denim shouting you know you you know he's we're going to make it rich we're going to be it's going to be the eighth wonder of the world and then cut into new york that's a perfect transition, that is. And I love that line, yeah, we'll be millionaires, I'll share it with all of you. No, you won't. Yeah. You won't. No, no you won't. <laughs> He's not at all. Uh... Yeah, I'm just going to tell you this because I want to get him back to New York and I want everyone to be on board with me until I, you know, get him there and then that's it. You guys are not having anything. Yeah. We may have lost 17 uh, of your uh, fellow um, yeah. uh, sailors and adventurers, but hey, we're going to be millionaires. And then, you know, we see him unveiled on, on stage and, and he's all chained up. And I just love that line of reassurance. Don't worry, folks, these are chrome steel chains. And, and <laughs> yeah. cr- chrome? Cr- chrome's not a strong metal. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like, and it's, it's the fact that people pay so much to see it as well. You know, yeah. one man says, well, I pay $20 to see this. And the fact that it's a Broadway show, it feels like it should be something classy, but it's not. It's a bunch of people paying to gawk at a giant yeah. animal. Like, yeah. I know at one point the script, they were going to be, I think maybe in uh, Madison Square Garden or something like that. But I, I love just something about the Broadway reveal works so much better where you know, you have all these people who are dressed up and it's like this dapper, classy kind of event yeah. that they're going to. And it's it's just a monster on stage that breaks loose and causes havoc. Well, we, we talk about how they managed to get him from uh, Skull Island to New York. How did they manage to get him into the theatre without anybody in the streets noticing this giant <laughs> ape being pulled in? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, best okay, not to ask not, those questions, Steve, that. isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and then Kong escapes and isn't it when he sees jack is jack the kind of catalyst to kind of really get him angry and break loose chains or am i getting confused the jackson version uh no he, he sees and arrow and then they start to taking the photographs and kong yeah, thinks that she's in she's in danger right so then kong escapes you know, bursts out into into new york right that l train scene apparently that was shot purely to pad the film out and to take the film from 13 reels to 14 reels something of a superstitious move kind of didn't really need to happen because editor ted chessman edited the film eventually down to 11 reels and the 100 minute runtime so it didn't really need an extra reel to take it from 13 to 14 because it would have ended up being 12 anyway wouldn't it oh it's a great scene though oh it's a really and, good uh, scene I, I, yeah i love just the, the mayhem like I, I think i mean every film you usually end up shooting some scenes that aren't going to make it into the final cut and hey maybe we're going to need this for padding so even though they didn't need that scene for padding it's just kind of a great moment of yeah kong smashing into civilization yeah yeah and um, when i first saw it i must have seen the edited version because there's a scene in there where he actually 
stamps on somebody. I remember seeing that on the the Blu-ray version I got now, and I was it was so impactful because I had never seen it before. Is it, isn't that when he's on the island though, when he's killing the villagers? Oh, he does it in the. Oh, maybe that's when. It, yeah, uh, uh, does he do it in the? Because he New kills York a as well? lot of those villagers. He, he does. He does. Yeah. <laughs> he, do, he does stomp on a villager and also chews on one. I, I mean, think that was something that was yeah. also cut from the. Uh-huh. The TV version back in the day. Um, the thing that always kind of mortified me as a kid, and then it still kind of makes me uncomfortable now, uh, is when the he's wrong girl. climbing up the yeah the wrong girl, yeah. where he just kind of looks at her. It's like oh that's not her, and tosses her. And like from Kong's it. point of view, it makes sense because it's like oh that's not that's not Anne, that's just yeah. somebody else. I like you know like a toy, but you know this poor woman's just getting like hauled out and then dropped to her death. Yeah, uh, and then of course the Peter Jackson version, they have to do it like three times because once isn't enough no and then that all is leading into the empire state finale this was a combination of real planes miniature planes and the bit that amazes me is that it was all shot against real plates of the empire state building i thought that they built a model of the empire state but it was actually just plates of the actual building that they were shooting against and then you've got that bit in between where (laughs) the bit where the giant hand comes in and grabs Anne and takes her through the window now, that isn't in the Peter Jackson version, is it? No, because uh, the third act plays out a little bit differently, where Anne isn't at the Broadway show and... It's uh, the skating on ice scene, isn't it, in the Jackson version? Yeah, she, she comes out to, like, she comes out to, to calm and right. down. Yeah. Yeah. Again, like I say, these two films, they do play alongside each other in my mind, and sometimes I've got to concentrate to separate them. When, you know, when those planes are up in the air, then, and... and Cooper and Shodzak actually made cameos as the pilot and gunner in the plane that fires the, the eventual killing shot at Kong. It, it's at this point that we, you know, we've seen him bite people. We've seen him throw, throw that poor woman like you know thirty stories down into the street. But still, at this point, this is the bit where you know the the tug at your heartstrings moment because he's completely vulnerable and he's completely real. Yeah. To us, but at this point, yeah. yeah. And I think that's where the the strength of the film is, as we said. At the beginning, we can see the movement. We we know that he's not real. Within ten minutes, you you forget about that. Mm. And at the end, he is a real character in this film. And you can feel and his yeah, pain. Yeah, you're not can thinking you? about him as a special effect. You're thinking about him as a character. And you know, again, that brilliant moment where he just sees the blood. Yeah. And you know that, like, oh, you know, this is going to be the end for him. He's got nowhere to go, and he's still kind of making that last stand. And he manages to get one of the planes down, like he's putting up a fight, and the way he beats yeah. his chest, like you, you're kind of, in a way, rooting for Kong, even though you know that there's no way he's going to make it out of it alive. Yeah. And well, we understand his it's dilemma. Such a dynamic. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We understand yeah, it's, where it's he's coming from fault. because it's love. He's been put into this situation that, like, he has no control over, and he's just acting the way you know an animal acts. Like, I, I think that's one thing I think about is how people will sometimes put animals in these situations. And then the animal acts like an animal in a weird situation. And then, you know, we blame the animal or kill the animal. <laughs> That's something that comes up in real life, not just in the movie. But um, I, I love just the dynamic photography with the planes swooping in. Like, the, again, there's so much movement that it's it's really exhilarating. And, you know, seeing the camera come right at Kong while he's swinging his hands. And then, the, you know, the camera will pan and then you see the real plane flying off like it's just a stunning sequence it's yeah. really exciting yeah and then there's that bit where he's facing kind of left in frame and then he's got his hand on that the, the kind of top of of the building and that kind of kill shot goes in and then he goes down and 
and you cut to that wide shot of him kind of falling. Now, if that is a plate of the Empire State Building, this is this is where this doesn't add up to me. You actually see the Kong figure hit part of the building as it goes down. Mm-hmm. That would tell me that surely they must have had a model. There's definitely a model because you can see like the the tiny and arrow and stuff on the on the top. Yeah. I think it might be a model for the upper part and then they might have combined that with the real photographic plate of the Empire State Building just to kind of make it look realistic. Yeah, that'd be the only explanation, wouldn't it? That they overlay yeah. the photographic plate of the building onto a model. Yeah, and when he falls and you say he hits the side of the building, it looks like he's going a long way down. Yeah. yeah. So it, it must have been a huge model for him to do that because it it, re- it does really have depth in it. Yeah. And then obviously, you know, he's at the bottom. Then you've got, like, you know, the cops, the army guys all kind of around him. And then Carl Denham turns up and then we've got that famous closing line. He was in the planes. He was booty. Killed the beast. Yeah. I know Peter Jackson wanted, he wanted Feyre to make a cameo in his remake where she would say that line. And I'm glad that actually didn't work out. Like, you know, as nice as the idea is to give Feyre a cameo in the, the... Peter Jackson remake like it doesn't really make sense for just some random character to say that line like for me that line part of the reason why it, it's so effective is that it's Carl Denham saying it yeah yeah but also because again right to the he's putting his spin on it because he's a showman yeah. and no matter what disaster happened this is show business it doesn't matter how you know that woman who died who was tossed out the, out the window anybody else who died anybody who was unlucky enough to be on the street when the ape um, landed on top of them that doesn't matter because this is show business. Yeah, now we've mentioned the score as well, and especially in our last act, the sound design and the sound effects. Now, Murray Spivak was in charge of the amazing sound work on the film, and I was amazed to find out that he was the highest paid member of the film's crew. How can he be paid more than Max Steiner, than Willis O'Brien? I guess uh, it's because soundies were, were kind of new, so it, it was... Maybe, yeah. Early sound, it was really tricky, actually, to do a sound film because you would only really have two tracks to work with. So you could do dialogue and music or music and sound effects or sound effects and dialogue. Like, it, you know, it wasn't necessarily easy to mix these things. And those early sound guys were quite skilled to be able to work with the limitations that they had and make something that sounds this good. Well, King Kong was the first to use three separate tracks. Yeah. Oh, I think so you're right. Yeah. 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 Sound effects, and then it was the dialogue, and then the music. Yeah. yeah. And then the music. Yeah. So, like, it, it was technically like you know it, it was quite complicated to have a film that sounded like this at that time, where you there's dialogue and music and sound effects all layered together. Um, Doesn't uh, yeah. Max Steinmer have a cameo as? Is that him as the conductor? He's the conductor. In, yeah, yeah. In the is. um. Yeah. When when Kong is is unveiled on Broadway. Yeah. He's the conductor. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the film was released, I think it was March 2nd, 1933. This was released at the bottom of the Great Depression. And yet, it was a huge hit. And much like Star Wars, which came at just the right time in the second half of the troubled 1970s, Kong was just what Depression-era America needed in 1933. And as I said, Ray Harry he was 13 years old when he first saw King Kong on a big screen, and it put him on a path to become you know, a legend in stop-motion effects work that would filter into our lifetimes. Obviously, the film then being a big hit, Son of Kong was rushed into production and came out the same year. Am I right, Martin, that that was a more of a modest yeah, success? it was a much smaller endeavour. Uh, it, it was rushed out and it didn't make as much money. And I think they kind of knew it wasn't going to because it had a smaller budget and... And the quality um, was... Going back and rewatching it, I, I don't think it's a good film or great film, but 
there's definitely things I appreciated about it on uh, on revisiting and just learning more about what went on behind the scenes. I've got well, I've got Armstrong a better understanding of why it. Uh, yeah, he's he's really good in it. I think. Yeah. And one thing I like about it is just seeing all the fallout <laughs> on the on the Carl Denham character. Everything that he did in the first film kind of catches up with him. But um, I know like there was a lot of personal tragedy for Willis O'Brien uh, during the making of Son of Kong, which I oh, think yeah. sort of filters into it. And I think like yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's it's a great film, but it's. I, I've got a new appreciation for it after researching and revisiting it. And obviously, you know, the, the key to the original King Kong success was Willis O'Brien's work, his amazing effects work. And on Mighty Joe Young in 1949, that won Willis the Oscar for Best Visual Effects at the 1950 Academy Awards. So he finally got the recognition that he deserved. I'd read uh, somewhere that they wanted to give him an Oscar for King Kong and he's like, well, you should give an Oscar to everyone on the special effects team because it's not just me. And they're like, yeah, we're not going to do that. So some people said that that actually might have hurt his reputation with the Academy, but eventually was recognized for Mighty Joe Young. And I know like a lot of if you talk to people who are like real King Kongophiles, I guess you could say a lot of them will say like, well, the Mighty Joe Young is actually superior in story and special effects. Like, you know, real aficionados, some people will hold up Mighty Joe Young as being the best of this group of collaborators' work. Well, yeah, the, you know, the brief snippets of Mighty Joe Young that were on the, the King Kong, that huge documentary, the stop motion effects in that are a heck of a step above King Kong. I have not seen enough to see if the same amount of character is in it, but you can tell that, you know, it's clearly, you know, this film is what, 16 years on from King Kong. Oh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, Mighty Joe Young, I have to admit, although I haven't seen it for such a long time because it's not recognised like King Kong. And, yes, it, there was a remake, was it, about 10, 15 years ago. The truth is, you I mean, I'm not sure where you would get a copy of it these days. Right, I guess no, the remake's probably like, that, that's 90s, I remember. Yeah, it's it's 90s. Was it 90s? Little, yeah, yeah, it oh, wow. yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, wow. But, I mean, if you talk about King Kong versus Mighty Joe Young, I think King Kong, it's just one of those films. It's like Jaws or Star Wars or I guess for later generations to like Jurassic Park or The Matrix, where it's one of those films that really inspires people to become interested in filmmaking. And it kind of captures your imagination in that way where it's like, how is this even possible? And I think Mighty Joe Young, in, in some ways, I think it's actually a superior film, but it's not that same kind of captivating experience you know it, oh, king kong is like a filmmaker's film yeah there, there's like that aspect of king kong that i think doesn't necessarily carry over to mighty joe young which for me i like on watching it i, I thought like oh it's it's almost like an apology for king kong like oh we're sorry we're, we killed the the ape and we're sorry that we made him look like a monster and you know here's the nice friendly ape who lives at the end and in some ways it's kind of a continuation of those themes of criticizing show business and it, it's a fantastic film but uh you know, it's just not a part of the zeitgeist in the way that King Kong is. I'd love to see it get a, a proper release though one day. Like I had a DVD that had both King Kong and Mighty Joe Young on it that came together, but I don't know if it's gotten like a solo Blu-ray release or anything like that yet. It was never made, but I really would have loved to have seen Marion C. Cooper and Willis O'Brien's War Eagles. That was the thing that came up that I, I thought like, wow, that, that would have been really something. It was this film they wanted to make in 19... 39, right before World War II, where, you know, you would have had this disgraced pilot who gets stranded in the Arctic and finds this lost civilization of people who live this tribal lifestyle who have these giant eagles. 
and they uncover this uh, Nazi plot to invade America using this electromagnetic uh, superweapon on a Zeppelin. And so the, you know, he convinces the tribe of people to use their eagles to stop this Nazi air invasion. And they would have had this like massive aerial battle over uh, New York. And I'm like, gosh, that, that's too bad that never got made. You can see a lot of the pre-production artwork and uh, models and stuff like that are uh, still around. But I guess the studio kind of chickened out because they're like, ah, you know, is this a warmongering stance? Is this going to be politically look bad? You know, it wasn't quite the point where America was in the war yet. So, you know, yeah. a lot of Americans had that attitude like, oh, we just don't want to stir up any trouble. So that yeah, maybe if out, three or four years later, it yeah. would have been a different reaction to it. And Ernest B. Schultz, like, I know like during the war, he had an injury. He was doing like high altitude photography experimentations and um, he, he had his eyes damaged. So I, I thought it was surprising when he did Mighty Joe Young, which got back together, you know, Ruth Rose and Willis O'Brien and, you know, even bringing back Robert Armstrong, you know, it was sort of like, oh, let's get the gang back together. But I, I was surprised when he directed Mighty Joe Young, he was almost blind. You know, he could barely see, actually. So I just thought that was interesting that, you know, they all kind of stuck together and helped each other out. And it, it was a it was a tight crew that made King Kong. It was. Yeah. Yeah. So, guys, what would you say then, or how would you best describe the, the kind of lasting legacy of Kong? Now, obviously, we know it would go on to spawn decades' worth of films, and obviously then you'd have that crossover into the kind of um, kaiju and Godzilla territory. But just in terms of filmmaking in general, how important is 1933 King Kong? I think it's one of the first great action films. I mean, you had silent films like The Thief of Baghdad and films like that. But in terms of just sheer propulsion, I think that it had to be highly influential in that respect. Because as we've said already, the film does not let up. From the moment we get to the island to the very, very end, there's not a moment where there's the odd moment you can take a breath. But that's it. That's all it allows you. And we still see that today even you know cranked up to 11 but um, we still see it today and i think and, and also the influence of the music on there because you can hear the influence that the music had on people like john williams today and uh, you know jerry goldsmith and all these others so um and that's as we say 90 years later and the, you know when star wars came uh, out in 77 you could hear the root of the themes of star wars right back to 1933 and uh, max Simon. yeah you know yeah Steiner, you know, he'd come on, wouldn't he, to be known as 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 the father of film composing. He would, yeah. yeah. And, and not only that, but um, stop motion animation was used right up until the nineties. Yeah, we forget that. Yeah, sort of the last, as far as the special effect, because you still have stop motion animated films that are all stop motion. But like, I guess RoboCop two was kind of the last big one. I sort of think of uh, as far as using stop motion animation as like a special effect. That's nineteen ninety. There maybe a couple others. Yeah, um, but I, I think there was another one back in the late eighties, and you mean know, to yeah. think that Empire Strikes Back? There's a lot of it yeah. in there. Yeah, I actually think it's it's too bad. I know Universal was trying to get a King Kong made in the seventies, and then sort of had it in development hell through the eighties and nineties. But I thought like it's too bad there's not really another King Kong from the that late stop motion period with stop motion animation you know at, at that point they were using puppets in the 1970s king kong or king kong lives like it's all guy in a suit and it would have been interesting to see like a go motion king kong i think like that's sort of too bad we didn't get to see that but i i think as far as the legacy of the original film for me it, it sets the template for what a blockbuster should
should be. You know, the special effects, the music, everything, the excitement. It's it's like the prototypical blockbuster, I think. You know, really, it's like the Citizen Kane of giant monster movies. <laughs> or maybe <laughs> Citizen Kane is the King Kong of non-giant monster movies because King Kong came first. I don't know. But, you know, it's, it's a film that, talk about influence. Its DNA is like in pretty much every film that came after to some degree. It's just part of the culture, part of the cinematic landscape. And it's sort of funny that like as they keep bringing Kong back through either remakes or sequels or whatever, uh, you start to see the influence of other things on King Kong. But I, I think as far as that original movie goes, it's just uh, for me anyway, I think it's like a pillar of, of Hollywood cinema. 1933 King Kong, it wasn't the birth of stop motion effects, but it was kind of like where they came into their own and they would be kind of well perfected really and then become kind of a dominant force you know, in terms of monster effects you know throughout the decades and you know it's, it's quite fitting really that if, if that's the birth of stop motion in a way that steve you and i were lucky enough to speak to phil tippett on episode 39 you know the, the guy who kind of took the torch from ray harryhausen and, and carried stop motion into his own version of it go motion and you know he worked yeah. on some of our favorite films you know he, he won oscars for you know his work on the star wars trilogy you know, he, he brought Ed 209 to, to life in my favourite film, Robocop. And he was kind of there, wasn't he? He was the kind of champion of, of that type of special effect when it eventually died out in the early 90s and it was supplanted by CGI. And then, of course, fast forward into 2005 when Pete Jackson, who hot off his success in 2003 with the Lord of the Rings trilogy and then Return of the King wins all of those Oscars. And, and it was a project which he, he actually considered or tried to do before the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but that didn't work out. But King Kong being his favourite film, he then used his clout in Hollywood to, to remake that film. What are your views on the, the, the Peter Jackson 2005 remake? I remember it being hugely anticipated when it came out. Yeah. This is, you know, Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings, and King Kong together. I, I don't think I've ever anticipated a film as much before or since, which sounds a little bit weird now. Like, you know, we've lived through Star Wars sequels and Matrix sequels and all this stuff. But I think, like, that was the most hyped I had ever been for a film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, ever. Probably will ever be. Well, yeah, you know, I was the, I was the opening night. I, I was at, at that point in my life just obsessed with Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy. So when... You know, he was remaking King Kong, and when I first saw, you know, how the creature looked, I was just, yeah, fully on board. And, you know, Martin, as, I, as I've said to you, kind of off mic in, in the days leading up to this recording, most of my prep has been obviously concerned with the first film, the original 1933 film, and the only other two films that I've re-watched in prep for this were kind of, well, one which I had to, I had to re-watch 2005 King Kong, and then the other one, which was just a kind of matter of convenience, I rewatched Kong Skull Island. Right. Now, I'm going to ask you, Martin, to, you asked me what I thought of them, and I was quite cryptic. I said, obviously, I've seen both before, and one of them has kind of gone down in my estimations, and the other one has gone up. Which way do you think it is? I think the Peter Jackson one has gone down and Kongsville Island has gone up because that, that, that was sort of my feeling when I, I revisited them both. That is exactly it. Yeah. That is exactly it. I've always been a fan of, of Peter Jackson's 2005 film, but watching it now, and I didn't watch the extended version, which I think is 13 minutes longer. I think it's... Yeah, it's, hours. it's close to three and a half hours. Yeah, it's, it's three so... hours 20 as opposed to the theatrical cut, which is three hours seven. And it is way too long. It's just <laughs> way too long. And I, as I've said, films which are too long 
kind of you know grinds my gears and it's action scenes which which drag in this one it's the it's the bit with the um stampede in brachiosauruses oh that's awful that is Call yeah that's that yeah. just not look they, great they all are... they all run in in straight lines yeah. as if there's nothing around them and yet they got these great big dinosaurs they should have been bumping into them yeah. and, and there's there's not they just it's like a, a comedy sequence exactly and it's the same ridiculous physics and implausible action which results in no deaths which kind of plagued you know that first Hobbit film when all of those Hobbits uh, are kind of running away from the, the Goblin King and none of them are dying, and and it's just no. all completely preposterous. And it's yeah. And we're talking about not, not dying in the insect scene, the uh, you know the that he put in. Somebody actually shoots the giant insects off, and, uh, <laughs> the, oh, sorry, yeah, without actually, yeah. yeah. And he's got his eyes closed, and you know, yeah. that, that just I I can't buy into that. No, That's, it, I mean, suspension that, that, disbelief just that moment in particular the door. to me feels really like yeah. I just acted out we'll figure it with the CGI after you yeah. know um, yeah. I, I think it, like looking at the production history it does I think suffer from kind of getting rushed into Peter Jackson had had King Kong it was going to happen in the 90s with him as director and that got cancelled on him so I think he didn't want to let it slip through his fingers again after Lord of the Rings so, you know, they said instead of uh, taking a year off to maybe rest and recover after Return of the King, it was just like, nope, going straight into King Kong. And I think it's not as rushed and unprepped as the Hobbit films, but I think you could see the cracks in the dam in his King Kong film that eventually like kind of break through and let the flood come through with the Hobbit movies. I think like a lot of the the little faults in King Kong kind of blow wide open with the Hobbit movies. But I think and the I, three hour running time really, really exposes every yeah. single crack. It really does, yeah. yeah. But it feels like he can't cut anything out because it's like, oh, you can't cut out that. That's the moment. And oh, this is my homage to this. And that's the spider. Like, I think the phrase that I used in the, the articles is that like, oh, it's, you can feel the film start to get buried under its own reverence for the original movie and it's like oh it's not just a moment from the original film it's the moment and it has to be kind of overblown and blown up and that kind of drags everything out i find yeah yeah i agree and i don't like jack black as carl Denham. i like jack black i think he's acting like he's in a completely different film yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah. it's a strange choice in in some ways like i think i don't know who who you'd necessarily get for that particular version i know in the in the 90s when they were talking about having robert de niro play carl denham which i think would have been maybe interesting but i think like jack black doesn't necessarily seem like this hard-boiled worldly guy who's shooting rhinoceroses and uh, all of that stuff that carl denham is supposed to be so he i don't know about that choice and Again, like I, I like Jack Black, but yes, but not in. There's limits to what he can do, and I think this is just goes beyond that. His believability. Now, in terms of the effects and the, the you know, Kong done in CG with Andy Serkis doing you know the, the kind of motion capture that he did with Gollum on the Lord of the Rings, that's just absolutely phenomenal. And the amount of character that he imbues into him is just, Ooh. it's just next level. It, really it is. is. That's where the film yeah. is the strongest, I think. But one thing I will say, right? In the original film, Kong is very much rooted to the floor, right? Yeah. In the uh, 2005 version, he, you know, he's much more agile. He swings some yeah. trees. He climbs things. Why did he not climb over the uh, wall? Why did he have to break through the door? Yeah. Because because the type cool. of well, that's the only reason. Yeah, because it looked cool, <laughs> and Peter Jackson wasn't restraining <laughs> himself, was he? Exactly. In 33, you could believe it because yeah. he was very much rooted to the ground. And even when he was climbing up, you could see that he was, you know, more of an effort. It wasn't something that came natural. Yeah. You know, there are some absolutely beautiful moments in it. 
you know, both on the island where they're watching the sunset. I really like the ice skating scene as well, I have to admit. I do too. I, I know that scene gets a lot of hate, but I, I think like everything in the film feels so much like a foregone conclusion. You know how the original film goes. You know how the story goes. It's only a matter of time before he goes up that Empire State Building and gets shot. But I like that ice skating scene because it's just a nice little break from that. Even though, again, like it, it probably just adds to the the bloat of it all but it's like just give these characters a nice little moment without a bunch of stuff happening i actually i think the whole third act i'd say is pretty strong like once they get back from new york i think the pacing improves and i i think the film loses a little bit of that comedy which i think doesn't always land and um but that last stretch i think from the return to new york to the conclusion is is probably the best stuff in the film yeah i, I agree. agree yeah, yeah. you're know, the bit on the empire state is it is so well done. It really is. Yeah. And yeah, like I said, um, Kong Skull Island did actually fare a lot better on second viewing. And I think in a lot of ways, it's a far better put together story because it's just not got the, the same amount of fat. And also, I think there's far better performances throughout the film from numerous actors. From some of the actors. <laughs> some of the actors, some. But, you know, it did fare a lot better for me than than King Kong and, and that really came as a surprise to me it really did but watching 2005 Kong now this is so much extraneous crap that it shouldn't have got past the script stage but I think that where Skull Island has got an advantage is that it's not laboured with the expectation of the original because we all know what's going to happen to Kong in King Kong yeah. and Skull Island was able to take that character and then go somewhere that we didn't know where it was going to go and I will say that Kong Skull Island is much less of a King Kong film because it's less about the character, it's more about the humans. Yeah. There's something fresh about, hey, we're not just going to tell the same story again. You know, it's King Kong doing things that are a little bit different. I think, like, it's probably a little bit closer to something like the Toho Kong films from the 60s. You know, it, it's a little bit like a revamp of that. I think the whole Legendary Pictures MonsterVerse endeavor is meant to be like that, but I think Kong Skull Island is the most successful at that I, I actually think it's like easily the best of any of these oh, uh absolutely monsterverse movies yeah. you know it's actually got some it's got some style to it it's got some creativity i think like you know there's there's a lot to appreciate in it even though it's i think you could say a less ambitious film than peter jackson's king kong going back to the the toho versions godzilla versus kong that which is a great battle by the way that i, I really do like that scene when they they battle it out on the mountain but isn't that story based on willis o'brien's uh, story yeah it's it's a really strange story where he came up with this idea to do a frankenstein versus king kong film basically to drum up work for himself and that kind of got stolen from him by a producer who sold it to toho uh -huh. and um, may have even played a role in willis o'brien's death where he, he died not long after it came out and just kind of <laughs> was, was stressed out dealing with um, the whole situation and not having enough money to get a lawyer to sue the producer who basically stole his idea and yeah uh -huh. it's it's a kind of complicated long thing i i do go into it in the articles not to yes, get yeah. too sidetracked with that but yeah it's, well no uh, I, I think it's worth noting because it's yeah. a sad ending to one of the heroes of king kong yeah i think a couple of these people involved with the original king kong or some of the other versions i i just found like you know there's a lot of tragedy actually behind the scenes i mean i guess that's bound to happen when you're around for 90 years yes some of the people involved you know didn't always have easy lives or happy endings to their lives you know so 
that that was kind of a common theme that came up or even like I, I remember just reading about uh, Jordan Roberts who directed Cogskull Island like th there was that whole article which went in depth about I guess after the film had finished he fell in love with Vietnam and decided to just live there as an expat and then he was um, assaulted at a nightclub and nearly killed you know but <laughs> there's like lots of little things like that that you kind of pick up here and there when you read about people who worked on King Kong films. <laughs> so just before we wrap up then, guys, are we all in agreement that the 1933 original is the best King Kong film? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. I, absolutely. I think there are things that some of the other ones do that are better, like certain specific aspects, but the original, it's the best, it's supreme, it's, it's the fastest Kong, the most entertaining Kong, the most heart-wrenching Kong, you know, it's it's the original, it's the best, you've got to watch it. In which case, yeah. then, guys, what is your pick of your second favourite? Oh, oh, can I choose Mighty Joe Young? Yeah, because it's kind of Kong. means. I know it's not a Kong film, but it's a, it's a giant um, ape Yeah, I think, yeah it's, it's all part of the same thing, isn't it? Yes. I'm going to go Kong Skull Island. Yeah. It's the one that's most freshest that in my mind. That might be mine too. <laughs> but yeah, you're going to go the same as well? You know what? I, I love both Mighty Joe Young and Kong Skull Island. Those those two are <laughs> maybe tied for my second pick also. Uh, I, I find like Kong Skull Island is just so entertaining that yeah. like it, it just goes down really well on a rewatch. And, uh, you know, I love uh, John C. Riley and Samuel L. Jackson's performances in it. And and Mighty Joe Young, I think, is a, you know, is a really wonderful follow up that, you know, it's it's not the real King Kong sequel, but it's kind of the real unofficial King Kong sequel. You know, just for just for the sake of diversity, I'm going to say my second pick is King Kong versus Godzilla because I've always loved it since I was a kid, and it's colorful and fun and weird, and that and King Kong Escapes I think are are just wildly entertaining movies, even though they clearly didn't have much of a budget to work with. Awesome. So there we have it, another classic struck off the Film 89 wish list. Martin, thank you both for joining us tonight, but more so, thank you for thank the you. incredible amount of work that you've put into these phenomenal articles, which I think roughly amount to almost 37,000 words on the King Kong cinematic legacy, <laughs> which is just you know an insane amount of depth. And, well, and, I actually downloaded them and put them together so I could read them on my Kindle, and it was 138 pages. Wow. <laughs> well, thank you for giving me a platform to make my, my uh, King Kong book that I didn't realize was a book. <laughs> well, um, and before we just, we're emphasizing the, the number of words and the number of pages, it is still, it, it is a fantastic article. So much detail, so much love for the genre and for the character. You know, if anybody's listening to this now, have a read of that article to, for the extended universe of King yeah. Kong. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a three-parter. It comes in three parts, but yeah, it's absolutely just phenomenal. Really just out, outstanding work by you, Martin. Thank you so much. Thank you. I, I promise whatever I do next, it's going to be shorter. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's okay. As long as it's not the love is there, that's all that matters. Yeah. Size does not matter. Shut up, Steve. You haven't got to edit it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Martin, where can people reach you on social media if they want to uh, chat about uh, Kong? Or, or film, television, or anything else? Best place to find me is over on Twitter. I'm at Movie Kessler. Also, I have a, I have a Ko-Fi now that's also Movie Kessler, if folks feel inclined to tip me for whatever reason. Also, is it okay if I plug a friend's thing? Oh, yeah, please do. Twitter friend, uh, Steven Scarlatta, who produced the Jodorowsky's Dune documentary, he has a new doc on Shudder. I think it's a Shudder-exclusive 
called shark exploitation. And uh, I think maybe it's a good tie-in if you like this conversation about King Kong and or read the article I wrote about King Kong because. Uh, you know, he has this documentary looking at films like Jaws or films that were inspired by Jaws and kind of contrasting the monster version of sharks with the real biological creature. And uh, I do something similar in the King Kong article, looking at the cultural history of gorillas and kind of contrasting that with the real animal and stuff like that. So I think, you know, folks might want to check that out. Yeah, sounds awesome. Excellent, yeah. Stephen, where can people find you? At Welsh Bluesman on Twitter. That's the best place. And you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies. That's Sky with an E on the end. And you can also find the rest of the Film 89 team on Twitter and Facebook at Film89UK. And please check out the website Film89.co.uk. Get straight to Martin's awesome articles because this podcast episode is merely a small companion piece to the epic thesis, I think as someone called it, uh, on Kong, which, yeah, one of the best things that we've uh, had had the pleasure to, to publish on the site absolutely awesome but that's it for now stay safe be excellent to one another stay away from skull-shaped islands but more importantly stay classy